Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. Welcome to Christogenia Run Talk Show. Tonight is Friday, April 6th, 2012. I have to say I'm really pleased with, with the um, the number of downloads that, that last week's Saturday program got, and I hope it continues to get them. It has over 700 downloads from the front page of my website in six days. That's that, that's pretty good because I think that's a very important topic, and I hope it gets a lot more exposure, and, and that is the Jewish connection to pedophilia and the missing children phenomenon. It, it, it's just incredible um, how strong that connection is throughout our history, and, and the Jews were thrown out of every country in Europe, and, and more often than not, it was because of problems with missing children and children found dead. And the Jews have really um, put a tremendous effort into uh, using their financial power and, and um, their, their own internal solidity to conceal that from, to, to conceal the knowledge of that from Christians. And one, the length that they go to, and, and something I didn't mention on the program last week, the length that they go to is fully evident with the case of, um, I forget her name, I'm sorry, but it was a girl in Georgia who was slain by a Jew named Frank and, and raped and, and slain by a Jew named Frank, and they lynched his ass, and the Jews actually founded the, the Anti-Defamation League. In, in the wake of that. And, and basically, the Anti-Defamation League is a, it, it's a public relations firm for, for a secret society, which is Benai Brith, it is, a, is a Masonic secret society. And that's the ADL has a lot of input in, in, in concerning religion and religious groups with U.S. government and, and law enforcement agencies a lot of, around the country. And, and that's a damned shame that a, Christian, a, a once Christian government could allow the, a, a Jewish supremacist organization that's basically a public relations firm for history's oldest crime ring, and they allow them to, to set the moral standards of, of what is right and wrong in Christianity. They're basically allowing Satan to run the shop. That's what they're doing. And I know from firsthand experience that U.S. government law enforcement agencies get most of their information on various religious sects, and especially Christian religious sects, from the ADL. And when I did the program with Sword Brethren back last year on, on the, um, the Great Sedition Trial, well, when all the patriots in the Roosevelt administration were rounded up and indicted for, for some flimsy sedition charge, which simply wasn't true, and they were indicted three times, and the ADL was behind that. The ADL was steering the FBI behind that, and, and that should be a major embarrassment to, to the FBI and, and to American law enforcement because it was purely political and absolutely disgraceful. And that's still going on today. So, so the ADL was founded when a Jew killed a Christian, raped and killed a Christian woman. And, and, and that, that's their, their, their heritage and their legacy. And um, that they should be seen as a public relations group for history's oldest crime ring, period. 
and, and they have a sister agency in, in the um, Southern Poverty Law Center, and they have another sister agency with, with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. That's an oxymoronic name if there ever was one. That the um, that they're both can that both of those agencies are also dominated or controlled by Jews, and they do the work of Satan every day. This is um. And, and be, I, I have to boast a little. I, I, I pray that I only boast in, in Christ and give all the glory to him. But, but Chris DeGenio also on, on the Alexa rankings this week for the first time and, and for several days in a row has been one of the top 50,000 websites in the United States. And, and that, that's um, praise Yahweh for that. And that's all I'll say about that. Okay, this is 2 Peter chapter 3. It, it's the last installment on a series on the, the, the epistles of Peter that turned out to be um, much longer than, than I thought and, and much longer than I planned, but that's not a problem. Uh, I think that might be good, and, and I hope that, um, that they're found to be edifying. Peter wrote his first epistle to the Israelites of the ancient Assyrian and earlier dispersions who were dwelling in western Anatolia. At that time, they were known mostly as Greeks, Romans, Scythians, and Galatians. People of other Adamic, but non-Israelite origins, also lived in western Anatolia at this time, such as the Japhethite Ionian Greeks and, and the Shemitic Lydians, that they were not the... Um, that they were not the majority populations, but they, they surely inhabited those areas. The context of his first epistle also demonstrates that these people that Peter wrote to were already established in Christ, and, and that Peter was only edifying that establishment. Presenting Peter's first epistle here, several weeks ago, certain statements from that first letter were illustrated in order to demonstrate just who his intended audience was. Aside from the salutation to the Christian assemblies of the provinces of Western Anatolia to identify who those people were. And among those, that those citations were, were 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 25, and 1 Peter 4, chapter 3, which all prove that Peter was not writing to Judeans, but rather he was writing to the dispersion of Israel from the Assyrian deportations and before time. Because the things which Peter cites concerning these people could only refer to them. And they could never refer to Judeans of the remnant 70 weeks kingdom, nor could they ever refer to people who were not descended from the ancient Israelites in the first place. For instance, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the apostle makes a reference to Hosea, who was writing about the, the Assyrian deportations of the northern kingdom and much of Judah. And he says to these people, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh. Those who have not been shown mercy, 
In, in other words, the people that were run out of Israel, the Israelites who were run out in the Assyrian deportations, who have not been shown mercy, but now are shown mercy. At 1 Peter 2.25, the apostle makes a reference to the writings of the prophet Ezekiel, where he says, For you were as sheep wandering astray, but you must now return, return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Clearly a reference to the lost sheep. The lost sheep are those of Ezekiel chapter 34, where it states, among other things, that my sheep have wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Ezekiel chapter 34 was written about the dispersed Israelites, of, of mostly the Assyrian dispersion, and it was written over a century after the Assyrian deportations of Israel and most of Judah, but before the final destruction of Jerusalem. Therefore, it cannot refer to the people returning from Babylon. It cannot refer to Judeans again. So we see that Peter's citation of Hosea refers to dispersed Israel, but not to the remnant of the Judeans. It can't. And Peter's citation from Ezekiel refers to dispersed Israel, but not to the remnant of the Judeans. Lastly, Peter 1, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, alludes to idolatry and other behavior which describes not the 70-week Judean kingdom, but only the people of the earlier dispersions of Israel. The 12 tribes scattered abroad, as James calls them, the innumerable multitude beyond the Euphrates, as Josephus describes them, those people are Celts and Scythians and Parthians. They are not the remnant 70 weeks nation, and they are not non-Israelites. Peter says there, for enough of the time is past, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, makes a very similar statement we're speaking of Israel according to the flesh, says that whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. Paul was speaking to the anciently dispersed nations of the people of Israel. So was Peter. Here in the opening of 2 Peter chapter 3, it is seen that Peter wrote this second epistle for those same people to whom his first epistle was addressed, and all of them were Israelites indeed. None of them were ever called Jews. Two Peter three one. This is now, beloved, the second letter I write to you, in which I arouse your pure minds with the mention, to remind of the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of your ambassadors from the Prince and Savior. Referring to the commandment of your ambassadors from the Prince or from the Lord and Savior, it has already been established that Peter is writing to those of the uncircumcision in the assemblies of the Christian assemblies of the provinces of Western Anatolia. And those are the very assemblies 
which Paul of Tarsus, who is mentioned later in this very chapter, had founded. Therefore, Peter, referring to Paul, and also to those whom Paul called both fellow apostles and fellow workers, such as Timothy and Titus and Silvanus, who wrote Peter's first epistle, is recognizing that these men are indeed apostles from Christ. That Peter's intended audience is those people of the uncircumcision who are of long dispersed Israel has already been proven in context throughout his epistles by both his use of certain language and by his references to the Old Testament prophecies, which can only apply to the Israelites of the ancient dispersions. And as I said several times these past few weeks, Peter was not citing these particular Old Testament passages because they gave him nice things to write, because they sounded good. He was citing these particular passages because they applied directly to the people that he was citing them to. That's the story of Scripture, that the gospel was to go out to the dispersed people of Israel, to the dispersed nations of the ancient children of Israel, and that they would return. They would return, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2.25, they would return to their Savior, to their God. And, and that's the, the, the same language that Paul also often uses. Referring to the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, which Peter has quoted and alluded to quite often in these two epistles. He sets it not all of the so-called New Testament Christians, indicting their so-called pastors for dispensing with the word of God, which is what they do, all of which words apply only to the literal genetic children of Israel of the Old Covenant. Indeed, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets are as important to Christians after the cross of Christ as they were to Christians, and they indeed were Christians, before the cross of Christ, to our ancient Hebrew ancestors who anticipated that cross, for they certainly also were Christians. I will cite Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 75. Then Zechariah, his father, meaning the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from old. Preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. This is a direct hearkening to the fulfillment of the prophets in the New Testament. Reading and studying the prophets, all of these promises are only for the literal genetic children of Israel, for our race, and we are that race. And, and that can be well demonstrated in ancient history, that Europe was settled from the shores of Palestine and the Levant 
and from the Caucasus Mountains and the people of the Assyrian dispersions of Israel. And the entire New Testament harkens back to those prophecies concerning ancient Israel. And, and Christians today deny the Old Testament that, that is the basis and the foundation for the New Testament. It, it's absolutely incredible. It's a total cognitive disconnect. It, it's uh, absolutely amazing what a little Jewish propaganda can do. Contrary to popular belief, the word Catholic, a word so often misused to describe these seven epistles of the apostles of Christ, which are buried in the back of our Bibles, does not mean universal in the sense that the later Romish church asserts that it means. It just doesn't bear that meaning. It was never, I know that everybody repeats it, but it's a lie. It was never used in that sense by any of the early Christian writers, although they did on occasion use the term. Catholic comes from two Greek words. Kata, K-A-T-A, meaning down, and holos, H-O-L-O-S, meaning whole, which is where we get our English word whole from. One genitive form of holos is holocus, an elision occurring when the words are joined, kata holocus becomes catholicus. The word's immediate parent is a Greek adverb of similar meaning, which is katholu, which means on the whole or in general. But early Christians used the term to describe the derivation of their faith and not its application. The meaning of the word was transformed in the 6th and 7th centuries to, to describe the application of the faith. That was not the word's original meaning. Originally, early Christians used the term to signify that they received the whole faith, that they received the faith down whole, kataholis, down whole, that's what it means, or completely. They received the faith completely. This distinguished in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, this distinguished Orthodox Christians from the Jews who rejected the gospel, and it also distinguished these Orthodox Christians from sects such as the followers of Marcion and some other more or less Christian Gnostics who accepted the gospel, or at least most of it, but rejected the Old Testament. So an original Catholic was one who accepted the entire scripture, both Old and New Testaments. That's what the word means. Even though there was never a single official canon that determined exactly what scripture was composed of in each testament, rather, they called their faith Catholic with a small c because they accepted the books of Moses, they accepted the writings, such as Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, Joshua, Judges, they accepted the prophets, and, the, and they accepted the gospel. Therefore, if a Christian claims to be a New Testament Christian, he is instead really only relinquishing the truth in exchange for the lies of the Jews.
2 Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, with scoffing going according to their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue thusly from the beginning of creation. Here, since the scoffers are portrayed as having a knowledge of and referring to the fathers, we must understand that the scoffers Peter refers to are from among our own number as well as from the camp of the enemy. He's not really making a distinguishment. We see today that this very phenomenon does occur as it was supposed to, and more and more people begin to scoff and to doubt the veracity of the Christian promises. And the more ambitious the date setters get from among the various sects, the more people become discouraged when those dates pass and the promise is still pending. The date setters are all little but fools. And, and of course, this phenomenon has been occurring for some time. However, the phrase, last days, as Peter puts it here, is not merely an end times reference to some far off in the future period, right? As most people interpret it. Rather, it is also simply a Hebrew metaphor for time future. Paul wrote in Hebrews, for instance, from, from the King James Version, at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, and he says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. And I would, in the Christogenian New Testament, the phrase, in these last days, is read at the end of these days, which is absolutely literal. However, the King James Version is not incorrect. We see that Paul considered his time to be these last days. Again, Jude bears a message much like Peter's is here at verses 17 and 18 of his epistle, and I quote, But you, beloved, must be mindful of the words spoken beforehand by the ambassadors or apostles of our Prince Yahshua Christ, that they said to you that at the end of time there shall be scoffers going in accordance with their own lusts for impious things. These are those, and Jude starts talking in the present tense, these are those making divisions, animals not having the spirit. And, and of course, anybody who's not an Adamite is a beast, period. As Jude attests to here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul teaching the same thing. Now this you must know, that in the last days, Grievous times will arise, for men will be narcissistic, covetous, arrogant, blasphemous braggarts, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unhallowed, unaffectionate, implacable, slanderous, intemperate, untamed, without love of goodness, reckless, demented traitors, lovers of pleasure. I mean, this describes most men today. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of piety, but denying the value of it. And from these you must turn away. So Paul's talking about the present tense again, right? His own time again. From among, them who are, from among them are they who get into the houses of and captivate simple women laden with wrongdoing, being led away with various lusts. 
the people who pillage the houses of widows. Note that Paul says that in the last days, grievous times shall come, inferring that they shall come at the hands of wicked men. And then he says, these you must turn away from, indicating that they were around in his time also. Likewise, Jude, at the end of time, there shall be scoffers. And then he says, these are those making divisions, therefore telling us that he saw them in his time also. And here in this verse, Peter says, there shall come in the last days scoffers. And in the next verse, which we have yet to read here, he says, for this willingly escapes them. And he goes on to discuss the Genesis account. And, and, and again, he indicates that even though he says they're coming in the last days, he knew, he knew them in his time also. Out of all of the epistles, perhaps the best brief New Testament insight into this phenomena is described by John in his first epistle in 1 John 2.18, where he says, Little children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born, from which we know that it is the last hour. They thought the last time was in, in their own time. Yet Paul described it just as well. Once it is realized that he is talking about his own time as well as the future in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a passage poorly translated by all those who cannot understand it simply because they do not understand the nature of the Edomite Jew. And I will quote, from the Christogenian New Testament, of course. Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, and our gathering to him, that you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose, and you should not be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as if by us, as though the day of the Prince is present. In other words, Christians from the very beginning were to act as if the return of Christ was imminent. And that's the teaching of Christ also. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first, past tense, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, this is all summed up in the Edomite crucifixion of Christ. That's when the man of lawlessness was revealed. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 9 that the unbelievers, the people who rejected Christ in Judea, are the vessels of destruction of the Edomite Canaanite people. The man of lawlessness had been revealed, the son of destruction, and Paul is speaking collectively of this entire race of people. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything, said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated present tense when Paul writes this letter. He is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. This is what the Edomite Jews were doing. They were in control of the kingdom. They had a great amount of control over the Roman people. That Nero's wife was extremely affectionate with the Jews if she wasn't a Jew herself, and there's indication that she wasn't. But, but she may as well have been. And they had a great amount of control over the ancient world. 
at this at, in, in the New Testament times and, and before and after, through, through the same money power and through the same control that they have today. They're always in the background. They're always in the counting houses, and, and they're always in control of, of kingdoms, and, and that's part of the mystery of iniquity, and, and that's part of the, um, the, the revelation of Christ. Do you not remember that? Yet, being with you, I had told these things to you. This is 2 Thessalonians 2.5. And you know that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time. Paul's saying that this, that this isn't to be openly known. He's writing that in his epistle, and it generally was not openly known among Christians until... Two seed line Christian identity. I, I, I don't want to sound like like, um, like a braggart, but the mystery of iniquity it is fully revealed today in the, the two seed line Christian identity. We understand the nature, the, the demonic nature of our enemies, of the Canaanites, the Edomites, and all the peoples who descended from them. And, and history proves that that correct at, at every turn. I would say. And you know that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time. So the mystery of lawlessness is already operating. Just as John said, many antichrists were already born. He prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way. And the pronoun, of course, is being used collectively in this passage. And then will the lawless be revealed whom Prince Yahshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence. And we see those promises often in, in Scripture, and Obadiah one eighteen comes to mind. Whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, with the operation of Satan. They are satanic. They will always be adversarial. To, to the white race and, and to God and to Christ and to his creation. In all power and signs and wonders of falsehood and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who were perishing because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. And because of this, Yahweh sends to them an operation of error for them to believe in that which is false. And, and wow, do we see this among our people today. And that all those should be judged who believing not in the truth rather have satisfaction in unrighteousness. Now, now, even the enemies of God, being deceivers themselves, are themselves also deceived. They believe their own lies. However, the people of God who choose not the truth are destroyed in body, along with them when his enemies are destroyed. That's the Christian warning. Those who would not flee from Babylon just as there seems to have been some Israelites among the Edomites in Jerusalem in 70 AD when that city was destroyed. The man of lawlessness described by Paul is the same as the Antichrist described by John. Paul describes the difference between the Israelite and the Edomite Judeans in Romans chapter 9, and John says of these same people, speaking in different terms, but he's still talking about the same thing, where he talks about many antichrists already having been born, John says, they came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, 
they would have abided with us. In other words, if they were of the same stock, they would have been Christians. But so that they would be made manifest that they are not all from all of us. And that's 1 John 2.19. They are the scoffers. They are the creators of divisions described by Jude and here by Peter. But they are only the primary source of the scoffing. Because if the people of God were not so susceptible to deception, the scoffers would have no place whatsoever in society. The Antichrist Edomite Jews were the primary source of scoffing then, and they are the primary source of scoffing today. And that's evident every time you turn on a television, open a newspaper, or open a magazine. They hate God and they hate Christ, and we as a people are constantly deceived by their lies. To Peter, 3.5. For this willingly escapes them, that the heavens were from old, and the earth from out of water and through water had been put together by the word of Yahweh, by which the society at that time was destroyed, having been inundated with water. But now... The heavens and the earth are being preserved by the same word, being kept for a day of fire. Being kept for fire for a day of judgment and destruction of the impious men. Verse 5 is, of course, a reference to Genesis chapter 1 and the first ages of the earth's creation. And, and I have a letter inquiring about my, my position on this, and, and this will answer that in part. And the first ages of the earth's creation, where it says at verse 9 in Genesis chapter 1, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Now, I say first ages, and, and some may balk because I do not understand the days of creation to be literal days as in 24-hour time periods. The word can just as well be age, as it is interpreted day, both in Genesis chapter 1 and also where the account is referred to in Exodus chapters 20 or, or 31. The fact that the sun and the moon, reading the Genesis account, were not created until the fourth day or the fourth age indicates to me that the word day need not be taken literally and almost certainly should not be taken literally. As at 2 Peter 2.6, the apostle indicates what he meant here at verse 7, where he says at verse 7, but now the heavens and the earth are being preserved by the same word, being kept for fire for a day of judgment and destruction of the impious men. In 2 Peter 2.6, he wrote, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah burning to ashes, he had condemned to destruction, having been set forth for an example of those who are going to be impious. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example for those who are going to be impious, where Peter is clearly speaking of the future. With the example of Sodom and Gomorrah being used to warn those who are going to be impious, Peter indicates what fire he refers to here in chapter 3, which is for a day of judgment and destruction of the impious men. In other words, Peter imagines the coming judgment of Yahweh upon the impious to be much like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
which we read about in ancient times. Other correlations with this passage are found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And I'll read from verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are completed, and I believe this has already happened, there are several presentations on that topic. And when a thousand years are completed, the adversary shall be released from his prison. The Jew will crawl out of the ghetto and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea. And they had gone up upon the breadth of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints in the beloved city which is the position we're in right now, and fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. And the false accuser, the devil, who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where also the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. This is what we suffer and what we await this very day. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. And Peter likens the judgment of the impious to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 6 through 8, refer to that same event. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore, and the heathen shall know, or the nation shall know, that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith Yahweh God. And this is the day whereof I have spoken. Exactly what is the nature of this fire is always debatable, until it happens, of course. But we have seen here how Peter described it. Another aspect of Peter's statements here is that the heavens and earth are being reserved for the day of judgment of ungodly men. And, and so it is evident, contrary to the claims of the scoffers, that the heavens and the earth exist for the benefit of man. The creation exists for the benefit of man. Man does not exist for the benefit of the creation. And, and likewise with the Sabbath, and, and likewise with all of the institutions of God. They were created for the benefit of man. That should be the Christian mindset. The scoffers, whose God is the earth, or even themselves, are of the opinion that men are mere parasites upon the earth, mere consumers, and that's the Marxist ideology, and that men are a detriment to the earth. And with that opinion, they seek to rule over men. In truth, the creation exists for the benefit of man. Therefore, man is not to worship the creation. Instead, man should worship the creator who has blessed him, for whose pleasure man was made. The scoffers, of course, reject that notion. Verse 8, But you must not forget this one thing, beloved, that one day with the prince is like a thousand years one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. From Psalm 90, verse 4, which is a prayer of Moses, actually. It's not a Psalm of David. It's a prayer of Moses. For a thousand years in thy sight 
are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Therefore, while the days of creation may well be mere days in the sight of God, they certainly may also be ages in the perception of men. Therefore, I interpret the creation of Genesis to be a poetic description of a creation that took probably many thousands, tens of thousands, millions, it doesn't matter to me, years to complete. And, and, and the geological evidence surely also supports that, as well as the biological. Verse 9. The prince does not delay the promise, as some regard delay, but has forbearance for us, not wishing for any to be destroyed, that's important, but that all should have pace, space for repentance. This is, as the opening verse of this chapter indicates, the second epistle which Peter had written to the same audience. The word any, as it is used here, means only any of Israel, since the word any here is governed by the word us. And therefore, Peter's entire first epistle must be examined in order to determine for whom it was intended, who his intended audience actually was. And what is therefore meant by Peter's use of the word us here in this passage? The word us certainly cannot refer to any incidental reader of this epistle. Since the epistle was originally intended for and addressed to a particular group of people, and not merely to anyone who happened to come upon it. To imagine that anyone could pick up this letter and apply it to themselves is to imagine, for instance, that the postman or the trash man could abscond with your mail and lay claim to whatever it contained for himself. I know you'd probably like to give him your bills, right? In the context of people, Peter's letter, in the context of Peter's letter, the word us can only mean those children of Old Testament Israel to whom the promises of salvation and redemption, which Peter specifically mentions, were made. The word us here was clearly not meant to include the wells without water of the, se the second chapter of this epistle. The word us was certainly not meant to include as Peter mentions, the natural brute beasts, those who eat amongst us unworthily, who were made to be taken and destroyed, who were mentioned in the second chapter of this epistle. That's called reading something in context, right? Something that Judeo-Christians just don't understand. If we indeed determine that we can count ourselves among the us that Peter refers to here, because we also are of like origin with those for whom he intended his epistles, then here we are assured that we must stay pious and faithful, and Yahweh God will indeed see us through the present and coming turbulence. For Peter tells us here that the judgment of destruction is for the impious. The judgment of destruction is for those people who are outside of the covenants 
and the righteousness of God. All Israel shall have space for repentance, and they shall indeed repent, whether they choose to do so in this life or after this life. As Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.24, the errors of some men are manifest beforehand, going ahead to judgment, but others then follow after. Others of us have to face judgment for our sins. Both Paul and Romans and the prophet Isaiah assure us that all of the seed of Israel shall indeed be saved. Here Peter affirms that, albeit in somewhat different language, where he tells us that it is, it is the intention of God that not any, meaning not any of Israel, would be destroyed, but that all would have space for repentance even those spirits in prison who sinned in the days of the flood, being not Israelites, but children of Adam, and and covered by those early covenants that Yahweh made with Adam nonetheless. Verse 10, But the day of the prince shall come as a thief, at which the heavens shall pass away with a rushing noise, and the elements shall dissolve with the burning heat, and the earth and the works in it shall be discovered. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. Therefore you must be alert, because you do not know in what hour or in what day your prince comes. But know this, that if the master of the house knew in which hour of the night the thief comes, he would have been alert and would not have allowed his house to be dug through. For this reason you also must be ready, because you cannot determine at which hour the Son of Man comes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to be written to, for you yourselves know thoroughly that the day of the prince comes as a thief in the night, when they, meaning the enemies, when they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them even as a labor pang to her, to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should surprise you as thieves. Where Paul says, by no means shall they escape, he is referring to the words of our Redeemer found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, where Christ said, Now learn from the parable of the fig tree, the fig tree that was cursed in Jerusalem, when already its branches should be tender and it would produce leaves. You know that summer is near. Thusly also you, when you should see all these things, know that it is near by the doors. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape, and Paul repeats that in Thessalonians, by no means shall they escape. Should it, by no means, back to Matthew, should this race escape until all these things should happen. The heaven and the earth shall pass, but my word shall by no means pass. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the messengers of the heavens nor the Son, except the Father only. Revelation 3.3, 3, Therefore remember how you have received and have heard and keep and repent. Then if you should not be alert, I shall come as a thief, and you may not know what hour I shall come upon you. 
Revelation 16:15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he being alert and keeping his garments, that he would not walk naked, and they would see his shame. This is not talking about clothing. Rather, it is a reference to Genesis chapter 3. It is talking about sin and shame. True Christians have no sin, provided that they remain in the blood of the Lamb. And if they do, sin is not imputed to them. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. This is in reference to Peter saying that the element shall dissolve with burning heat and the earth and the works in it shall be discovered. Paul wrote to Timothy, the errors of some men are manifest beforehand going ahead to judgment, but others then follow after. In like manner also are the good works manifest and those being otherwise, in other words, those works that are not good, are not able to be concealed. And we should always keep that in mind. Two Peter three eleven. Thusly, with all of these things being dissolved in such a manner, it is necessary for you to be holy, to be in holy conduct and piety, expecting and being anxious for the coming of the day of Yahweh, on account of which the heavens being ablaze shall dissolve and the elements melt with burning heat. But we may expect new heavens and a new earth according to his promise in which righteousness dwells. And Christ said in Luke chapter 20, verse 33, the heaven and the earth shall pass away, but these words of mine shall by no means pass away. Therefore we have in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth departed, and the sea is no longer. And I saw a new holy city, Jerusalem, descending from out of heaven from Yahweh, having been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Paul speaks about this same event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 55. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. We're getting metaphysical here tonight, right? In an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. This decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on, put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is guilt or sin, and the power of sin is the law. But the gratitude is to Yahweh in whom we are being given the victory through our Prince, Yahshua Christ. I am going to take the time here to attempt to explain some of those things from the epistles of Paul, which Peter later in this chapter tells us are difficult to understand and which correlate with Peter's statements here. These things shall hopefully tell us, these things shall hopefully help us to understand 
what resurrection is and how it is possible. Resurrection is a return in fleshly vessels to the physical realm by all those who have the spirit gifted by God to our first father, Adam. If you don't have that spirit, you're simply not resurrected. You cease to exist. That is the lake of fire. It is how Job attested that though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's Job 19.26. It is how the wisdom of Solomon says at 2.23, and I quote, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Our first father, Adam, was given the spirit of Yahweh our God. And it is allegorically represented in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, it was recently inquired of me by a good friend that if on the day of Pentecost, after the crucifixion, the Spirit of God descended on men from out of heaven. How do we have the Spirit of God if it is not descended upon us from out of heaven, that we also may have eternal life? In truth, all of the children of Adam already have that Spirit which was breathed into Adam. They were born with it. Those of us with that Spirit have eternal life because they have that Spirit. However, we are not complete unless God himself in his spirit dwells with us. Thus is man in his fallen state, a state which we have been in since the sin of our first father, Adam. And this is also related allegorically at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, where it says of Adam and Eve, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. For Yahweh God withdrew his spirit from our first parents upon their sin, represented by his casting them out of the garden, which is yet another allegory. We see in Revelation 6, which I've already cited here, In Revelation 16, I'm sorry, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he being alert and keeping his garments that he would not walk naked and they would see his shame. That's a direct reference to Genesis chapter 3, right? The spirits in prison, which Christ preached the gospel to after his death, described by Peter in the third chapter of his first epistle, an event also referred to by Paul. Those spirits had eternal life, those spirits had existence after death. Although theirs was a miserable existence during that time because they were alienated from God. However, upon the passion of Christ, they had reconciliation to God. And that is also a part of the message of the gospel. The illustration here is that their consciences existed after death. 
so that they could hear the gospel and repent and be reconciled to God. If one is not made after the image of Adam, one does not have that spirit which Yahweh gave to Adam. One is a broken cistern. And after death, one never even gets to that point. Since, as the Apostle Jude puts it, one is twice dead. Therefore Christ called the Pharisees, those Pharisees who disputed with him, he said to them that they were beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. Likewise, the spirit of the departed Samuel was inquired by of the witch of Endor, as it is portrayed in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And this indicates that he too was fully conscious after passing from this world. Among other things in reference to life after death, Christ spoke of the patriarchs, where he says in Matthew chapter 22, that I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. We, the children of Adam, live after our fleshly bodies are dead. And therefore, the things which we do in this world, we bring a remembrance of those things with us into the next world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapters, chapter 15, verses 42 through 48, Paul says, In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, the body we have now. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And Paul means a natural Adamic body, as the very next verse indicates. If there is a natural body, it is inherent that there is also a spiritual body. It is inherent. It is in our DNA. It is our DNA which creates the spiritual man. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual is not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, of soil. The second man from out of heaven, as he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven, the departed, right? Paul is making an allegory here, Adam being the first man, and Christ being, not the last Adam technically, but he who descended from heaven. He's not the last Adamite. Yet Adam and all of the children of Adam are in the image of God. And therefore, as Paul's words also suggest, all of Adam's children are as Adam and also as Christ. They all have an earthly body, and since the earthly body spawns the, the spiritual body, since the spiritual body grows out of the earthly body, they all have a spiritual body, a heavenly body. It is that heavenly body which the apostles recognized of Moses and of Elijah at the transfiguration on the mount. 
all of the children of Adam are born into the mortal flesh, but have a permanent life in the spirit. I will read from Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. Now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ, Yahshua, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who we came for. Indeed, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Yahshua, has liberated you from the law of sin and death. The law is powerless, and it has been weak over the flesh. Yahweh sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and amidst sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us, who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the Spirit. For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh. In other words, this is those people who are born of the world. As John explains in his first epistle, however, all of us who hearken not to the Spirit can imitate them. And they who are in accordance with the Spirit strive after the things of the Spirit, those who are born from above, those who are born of God, as Christ explains in John chapter 3, and as John repeats in his first epistle. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. Adam was made from flesh, and he was given that Spirit. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh. Then to the law of Yahweh it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy Yahweh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit. If indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, if indeed you are a damnic people, born of the physical seed in order that you may be raised with a spiritual body, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. And if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, indeed, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit alive because of righteousness, which is the gift of God, that we are all absolved of our worldly sins. Moreover, if the spirit of he who has raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you, in other words, if you are a child of Adam, he who raises the anointed from the dead will also pr produce alive your mortal bodies through his spirit, that dwells in you, passed down in DNA from Adam, provided one is not a broken cistern, a cloud without water, a well without water, a wandering cloud, a, a beast made to be taken and destroyed. So then, brethren, we are obligated not to the flesh to live in accordance with the flesh, for if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hearing the gospel and continuing in sin invites the wrath of God. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Deliver such a wretch to the adversary for destruction of the flesh, in order that the Spirit may be preserved in the day of the Prince. The Spirit may be preserved, even of sinners. All Israel shall be saved. 
all Israel shall have space for repentance, as Peter says here. Verse 14 from Romans chapter 8. Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. The enemies of God cannot be like us, although we can and often do follow and imitate them. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. If we are Adam, then we are already sons. But once we accept Christ, we accept our position as sons being reconciled to God. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh, and its children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. All of the children of Adam have the Spirit of God, which is the true man, and his eternal conscience, that is the treasure in earthen vessels, which Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So Paul reminds us that this life-giving spirit is a gift from God to us. It is not of ourselves, meaning that it is not in our own power. Therefore, we should glorify God and choose obedience to him as our appreciation for that life which we have been granted. But aside from the spirit of God breathed into Adam, that spiritual body which every Adamic man and woman has is a part of their inherent nature, the spirit of God which descended upon the apostles and the early Christians is something different. That is a token and a sign of the future restoration of the children of God. When God once again dwells on earth with Adamic man in his restored state. This was the fulfillment of what John told us in his gospel, where he wrote, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of God are to attain to those believing in his name, John 1.12. The word which Paul used to describe that descending of the Spirit at Pentecost was translated as earnest in the King James Version. The word, the Greek word arabon, means deposit. The word arabon was used by the Greeks of money placed as a deposit for the purchase of something, just as we use the word deposit today. The apostles received a deposit of the Spirit representing the future restoration of man once again reconciled to God, to that condition in which our first parents were created, before they fell from grace through sin. Wesley Swift and others referred to that condition as the Shekinah glory, which is probably not altogether inaccurate. With a literal reading of some of Paul's other statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and also in Matthew chapter 13, where Yahshua's Christ said of the last days, then the righteous shall shine forth like 
the Son in the kingdom of their Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now he who is establishing us with you in the anointed and anoints us is Yahweh, who is also confirming us and providing the deposits of the Spirit in our hearts. And that's, that word deposits is in the King James Version translated earnest, which is a strange word today, right? John chapter 14 helps explain this. John 14, verses 15 through 24. The words of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I shall ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate, that it would be with you forever, the spirit of truth, which society is not able to receive, because it does not see nor does it know it. You know it because it abides in you, and it is in you. I shall not leave you fatherless. I come to you shortly yet, and society shall no longer see me, but you shall see me, because I live and you shall live. On that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He having my commandments and keeping them is he who loves me. Then he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and make myself manifest to him. Judah, not Iscariot, this is the Apostle Jude being referenced, says to him, Prince, what comes to pass that you are going to make yourself manifest to us and not to society? Yahshua replied and said to him, If one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my father shall love him, and we shall come to him, and we shall make an abode with him. He not loving me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but is of the Father who has sent me. There are two passages left to illustrate all of the assertions here made here concerning the indwelling Adamic spirit, which is ours, which is our personality, our conscious, conscience, I'm sorry, and the references to the events which occurred in Eden and the deposits of the spirit, which are of the spirit of God, which are connected to the promise of Adamic restoration. They are from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And with these, hopefully this will all come together. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Paul says, In whom, meaning Christ, in whom we have also obtained an inheritance, being preordained, we were preordained back there in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were preordained, according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will. Now, now that design is the design laid out in Genesis chapter 1, that God created Adam in his image, breathed his spirit in his image into that Adam, into that man, and kind begets kind. If you break that law of kind begets kind, you create broken cisterns, clouds without water. If you keep that kind which begets kind, that's the design of his will, as he expresses in his word. We are not to race mix. Race mix children are bastards. They are not kind begets kind. They are destined for the lake of fire.
verse 12, Ephesians chapter 1, for which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had expectation in the Christ, who before had expectation, only the children of Israel, and whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, in which also having believed, this is the dispersion of Israel, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit, the spirit which descended, that Pentecost spirit, is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession, the spirits of Adam, in praise of his honor. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, meaning this body, we have a building from Yahweh, a building from God, meaning our spiritual body, which grows out of the physical body, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's inherent in our DNA. We have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the Adamic spiritual body of 1 Corinthians 15. And we bemoan in this, yearning to be clothed with our dwelling which is from of heaven, we would rather be in our spiritual body. If indeed even being stripped, we shall not be found naked. A reference back to Genesis that Revelation chapter 16 also makes. And indeed, we who are being burdened in the tabernacle, meaning this body, bemoan since we wish not to be stripped, but to be clothed in order that the mortal would be consumed by life that change that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now he who has been cultivating us for the same thing as Yahweh, who has been giving to us the deposits of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of Pentecost, the, the restoration of man by God's dwelling with Adamic man. Therefore, always having courage and knowing that residing in the body, we sojourn away from the prince. We're apart from God as long as we're in this physical body. Indeed, we walk by faith, not by that which is seen. Now we have courage, and we are still more pleased to travel out of the body, meaning in our spiritual body, and to reside with the prince or the Lord. On which account we also strive eagerly, either residing at home or sojourning, to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear in front of the judgment seat of Christ in order that each should be provided for the things after the body from that which he has practiced, whether good or bad. Then knowing the R of the prince, we persuade men. Now, to Yahweh we have been made known, but I also hope to have been made known in your consciences. And, and of that judgment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself, and only Adamic bodies even make it this far, will be preserved, although consequently through fire. So Paul talks about being clothed, with our dwelling, which is from heaven, which Yahweh our God provides for us. And that means that the spiritual man puts on the spirit of God from heaven, that our spirit and his spirit join to make the original complete Adamic man, which Yahweh our God created in the first place. 
which is why Christ talks about those who love him and says that God will come and dwell with those who love him. That is the complete Adamic man made in the image of God. And that is represented by that deposit of the Spirit of God from heaven, which was witnessed in the day of Pentecost. But that doesn't mean that the individuals who received it didn't have the Spirit of God. They certainly did, or they could never have received it. They are individually spirits created by God of his spirit in his image. That is what the Adamic man is. That is what Genesis teaches. That is what Paul teaches. And that spirit comes from our DNA. And that's also what the rest of the Gospels and the prophets teach. So, so it's, a, it's, it's one of those things that Peter talks about later in his epistle that's difficult to understand from Paul, but that is how the resurrection is possible. It's possible because each of us has, each child of Adam has a spiritual body which never dies. To Peter 3.14. On which account, beloved, expecting these things, you must be anxious to be found by him spotless and blameless in peace. And Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, in part, just as he has chosen us with him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the society, for us to be holy and blameless before him, we will return to that original state which we were designed for, which God intended before the foundation of society. Verse 15, and regard the forbearing salvation of our prince, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, and also in all the letters, speaking in them, concerning these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which those who are unlearned and unstable pervert, as also the rest of the writings for their own destruction. Here, Peter, writing to the uncircumcised of the assemblies of Anatolia and advising them not to disregard the teachings of Paul, Peter is actually writing for the purpose of supporting and fortifying the teachings of Paul, and his writings in both epistles throughout them do exactly that. This is why he wrote both of these epistles. This helps to confirm the fact that Peter was writing to the assemblies which Paul had founded, or at least helped to establish in the gospel. Peter's use of the verb is in the aorist tense, has written. While there are at least two epistles which Paul wrote which are missing, Peter's use of the phrase, all the letters, seems to refer at least in part to all of those letters which survived to be placed in our canonical scriptures. These, it is indicated, were copied and shared among the assemblies, even in Paul's time, and therefore they were probably well known in this manner at a very early time. Paul had written in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, writing to the Colossians, he writes, Greet the brethren, in Laodicea, or Laodicea, 
and Nympha and the assembly at her house. And when the letter is read, meaning the letter to the Colossians, and when the letter is read among you, ensure also that it is read in the assembly of the Laodicians, Laodicians. And that from Laodicia, meaning the letter that he must have written to the people in that assembly, that also you should read. So Paul wrote an epistle to the Colossians, and he wrote an epistle to Laodicea, and he expected them to exchange their epistles so that both assemblies could read both epistles. Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, which he expected to be copied for the Colossians. And likewise, that the Colossians would do the same with this epistle, which we have addressed to them, and send a copy of that to Laodicea. The letter Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, or the Laodiceans, as it's commonly mispronounced, is among the missing today. And we have no idea what it may have said. But it existed, and we see the custom of people copying Paul's epistles. They were copied, and they were made, the copies were made, and they were passed around even in his own time. And it is very likely, therefore, that Peter was familiar with his epistles, and his own words here testify to that fact. These, this also leads me to believe that Peter was writing to these assemblies after Paul's departure and subsequent arrest. Since they were always, as Paul explains in his own letters, they were always besieged by Judaizers, and that Peter was writing with the express purpose of confirming many of the teachings found in Paul's letters. That's the purpose of both 1 Peter and to Peter. That's why Peter is writing to the uncircumcised people of Anatolia when Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. For that reason, Peter warns his audience here not to disregard the things in Paul's letters and also to be careful not to corrupt them since they are indeed difficult to understand. And many take advantage of that even to this very day and twist the meanings of Paul's letters. We see that the Judaized, so-called Judeo-Christians of today, they have certainly not heeded Peter's warning, and it's for their own destruction. Verse 17, Therefore you, beloved, understanding beforehand must watch, lest being led away in the deception of the lawless, you should fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the favor and knowledge of our Prince and Savior, Yahshua Christ. To him is the honor, both now and in the eternal day, which is the day we accept. Truly, or amen. Nearly all of today's deception comes from the same bunch of Antichrist bastards Peter warns us about throughout this epistle. They love to lead us astray with things exotic and mysterious, and lead us right down the road to hell when we swallow the bait. The deception of the lawless is all of the devices of the Jew operating in the world in an attempt to destroy the white race. Paul called it the systematizing of deception at Ephesians 4.14. Today, while we are not certain, certainly not claiming to be perfect, 
Yet looking at all of the plain errors of all the mainstream Judaized churches and the other erroneous general perceptions held by our people, mostly created for them by the Jewish media, we can see just how far along this has gotten. The deception of the lawless refers to all of the propaganda of the Jew. The Jew is the lawless. The Jew, though, yeah, sure, they claim to uphold the Torah, and they destroy the Torah. They, didn't, they, they reject Christ, and, and therefore they reject all of the oracles of God, because Christ is found in all of the oracles of God. They are the lawless, and they are the masters of deception. And they're still deceiving most Christians today. And we see just how far along this has gotten by observing the world around us today and how narrow the way to righteousness truly is. Thank you for listening. I will be here next week. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to cover next week. I'm going to cover one of the minor prophets, perhaps. Uh, I also want to cover the epistle to Jude. Uh, whatever I choose to do next, I have two weeks to do because I'm going to... Um, after three weeks to visit Clifton Emmerheiser in my program in three weeks, we'll be broadcast from Clifton's home, and, and um, we're going to cover a few of Clifton's papers while I'm there. Clifton just wrote a, a, a few pretty good papers, which are going to be um, posted to his website in the next day or so. And um, I hope to cover those with him on, on my talk show programs here in at the end of the month and end at the beginning of May. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. Good night. And, and I'll see you here tomorrow night with Carolyn Yeager. And we'll be talking about The International Jew by Henry Ford. Praise Yahweh. Good night.